Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. This episode and the following two will be dedicated to just one man. His name is Saigo Takamori, but if you're not a Japanese history fan, you've probably never heard about him. Though maybe you are more familiar with Katsumoto, a noble samurai commander from the 2003 movie Last Samurai. Katsumoto's character was based on Saigo, but there are many more reasons why I think this man deserves your attention. First of all, Saigo Takamori lived in the mid-19th century and played an important role in the fall of the shogunate and the restoration of the imperial rule. And as you've probably noticed, this is my absolute favorite period of Japanese history. But secondly, and this is more important, Saigo is one of Japan's most beloved historical characters. Japanese history is full of fascinating individuals, and Saigo's accession to glory speaks volumes, first and foremost about the Japanese people and the way they see themselves and their ideals. Saigo Takamori, the great Saigo or the last samurai, is the ideal Japanese man, or perhaps even more of an ideal than an actual man. In popular imagination, Saigo Takamori is the perfect samurai, He's kind and honest, fearless and unwavering, intelligent and compassionate. He's selfless and acts only for the common good. And, of course, in the best tradition of heroic narrative, he developed all his ideal traits as a child. As you understand, such a description does not tell us anything about the real man. This is why Saigo is equally beloved by liberals and conservatives, communists and royalists, pacifists and militarists. His image is so heavily embellished that it is sometimes hard to see where reality meets fiction. But let's try to separate them anyway. Before becoming a great samurai, Saigo Takamori was born. His birthplace was the province of Satsuma, now Kagoshima Prefecture, located at the very south of the island of Kyushu. That is, if you imagine a map of Japan, consisting of four main islands at the very bottom of the lowest one. To put it into a better perspective, Kagoshima is closer to Busan or Shanghai than it is to Tokyo. The province of Satsuma was ruled by the Shimazu clan, which controlled it since the late 12th century. Situated far from the political centers of Kyoto and Edo, and cut off from the neighboring provinces by mountains, Satsuma developed into a kind of a country within a country. The people of the province did not even associate themselves with other Japanese, as much as with the native inhabitants of Kyushu, the Hayato tribes. They had their own rules and customs and their own dialect, which outsiders found hard to grasp. But, uh, like many other provinces, Satsuma had great financial troubles and problems within its own administration. And what's more important to our story, Satsuma had a huge samurai population that lived by its own military customs, which had not really changed in the past 200 years. It was in this province of Satsuma that Saigo was born on the 23rd of January, 1828. There are a few documentary sources about Saigo's childhood, 
Who knew that a boy from a poor samurai family making umbrellas to earn some extra money would become one of the revolution leaders and a beloved hero for generations to come? But rumors are plenty, and while for the lack of anything better the books refer to them, these stories again tell us far more about what the Japanese would have liked Saigo's childhood to be, rather than what it really was. The moral of this story, keep your childhood photos and diaries. If one day you become famous, historians will be extremely grateful. Or you can rely on the memories of your kindergarten friends and neighbors. The choice is all yours. So, what do we know about Saigo's childhood for sure? We know that Saigo family belonged to the rank of Koshogumi, the eighth from the top of the town established in Satsuma. We also know that Saigo's father worked for the tax office and had a reputation of being a reliable and hard-working man. We know even less about Saigo's mother, except that she was from a samurai family. Saigo himself later described her as even-tempered and sympathetic. Apart from his parents, Saigo had a grandmother and a grandfather, uncle Kohei and his family, and six younger siblings. The whole extended family lived under one roof, in the Shitanokajiya Machi Quarter of Kagoshima. The father's stipend was barely enough to feed 16 mouths, and Saigo family, like most other families of the Koshokumi rank, lived poorly and supplemented their income whenever possible with umbrella-making and crops harvested from a small field. Not far from Saigo lived the Okubo family, Saigo and the eldest Okubo boy, later known as Okubo Toshimichi, were friends and went to the same school, and later together arranged alliances between clans, overthrew the shogunate and restored imperial power. As for the childhood events, there is only one episode that can be confirmed. At around the age of 11, Saigo was quite seriously injured by another boy with a sword. The wound on his right arm didn't heal well, and Saigo had to give up serious sword training. Instead, he turned to books. In 1844, that is, at the age of 16, Saigo is appointed to his first job. Instead of the office position given to most of his friends, Saigo is sent to do fieldwork. As a copyist assistant, he travels around the province, interacting with farmers and collecting information for tax calculations. He does this for the next 10 years, acquiring an in-depth knowledge of farm life and an interest in rural administration along the way. The legend of Saigo, of course, says that he saw that the peasants in Satsuma were living even worse than poor samurai, that they were being harassed by exorbitant taxes and bribes, and that he found it completely inexcusable, and even wrote a petition to stop it. Though there is no information left about this petition, so we do not know whether it existed at all, or to whom it was addressed, and what was said in it. Although Saigo now brings money into the house, it does not make the family's financial situation any better. So, in 1847 and 48, Saigo and his father take out a hefty loan of 200 ryo, a sum equal to several years of the family's income, from a wealthy local landowner. But, from the looks of it, the loan doesn't make things much better. 
Many years will pass before Saigo can finally repay his debt in the 1870s after his appointment to the government service. The years 1849 and 50 proved to be turbulent for Satsuma. First came a bad harvest, to which the region was particularly sensitive because of the already imbalanced ratio of farmers to samurai. The farmers were barely able to feed so many noble panswipers even in a normal year. And then came the Yura purges, named after the charismatic concubine of the head of the clan. The concubine, the inheritance battles within the Shimazu clan, and the third round of purges in a relatively short period of time is a whole separate story. But all this does not yet affect Saigo that much, so we move to the year 1851, when Shimazu Nariakira becomes the head of the Shimazu clan. In our story, Nariakira is an episodic character, yet a very important one, because it is from him that Saigo learns about the world outside Kagoshima and gets ideas on what path not only Satsuma, but Japan as a whole, should follow to keep up with the times. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The following year, in 1852, the 24-year-old Saigo gets married. The marriage, in the usual manner of the time, was arranged between the families. Saigo's first wife was Ijuin Suga, but we know very little about her except her name and age. But most importantly, she will divorce from Saigo after only two years of marriage. Shortly after the wedding, Saigo loses his grandfather, father and mother a few months apart. At the end of the year, he is left with a huge family to feed, no parental support, and a previously taken debt of 200 ryo. However, Saigo's personal problems soon fade into the background. In 1853, a squadron of the US Commodore Matthew Perry's black ships arrives in the small port town of Uraga, near Edo, and I have a separate episode about it if you want to learn more. And we finally have Saigo's letter, through which we learn that even being a thousand kilometers away from Edo, he knew of the arrival of the black ships. What's more, we learn that so far the fate of Japan did not concern Saigo at all. The fate of Satsuma and the political balance of power within the clan? Yes, but Japan was still a rather vague concept to him. That, however, would soon change. In February of 1854, Saigo receives a sudden promotion and soon leaves Kagoshima for the first time and travels to Edo as a part of Shimazu Nariakira's entourage. How did he end up as a part of it is an open question, because no matter how hard historians try to link Saigo with Nariakira before 1854, they simply cannot find any, even anecdotal evidence for it. The simplest, and therefore the most likely explanation, is the trivial understaffing. The brief but brutal Europurges left Nariakira without his most loyal supporters, and Saigo was right here, alive young, intelligent, and due to his low position, completely unaffected by the internal power struggles. His promotions thus posed no danger to either Nariakira's allies or foes, and our hero suddenly found himself on his way to the very center of national politics. 
The procession left Kagoshima on 6 a.m. on February 18, 1854. On the 2nd of April, it stopped at Kanagawa, where Saigo could personally observe the full power of the foreigners' black ships. For Perry, this was already his second visit to Japan, and just two days earlier he had signed the Treaty of Kanagawa. Soon Saigo reached Edo, and I wish we knew what his first impressions of the city were. I suppose he was impressed, though it seems like he didn't succumb to the temptations of the big city. In Saigo's earliest surviving letter from Edo, written nearly five months after his arrival, he informs his relatives in Kagoshima that, unlike many other new arrivals, he doesn't frequent brothels in Shinagawa, and all his friends are good people. Officially, Saigo worked as a gardener at the Shimazu residence in Edo. In reality, however, he was not at all busy pruning branches and sweeping paths. The situation in Edo has been tense since the signing of the Kanagawa Treaty, which allowed American ships free entry to two ports, one of which was dangerously close to the samurai capital. And Lady Akira, who was deeply interested in foreign politics, could not remain quiet. He could not, however, openly barge into national politics with his proposals. In the distant year of 1600, his ancestors picked a losing side in the battle for power in Japan, and were given the status of Tozama Daimyo, external rulers excluded from decision-making. Therefore, even 250 years later, Nariakira had to act discreetly and with the support of other political leaders. To negotiate with them, he needed a confidant, someone who would understand his thinking well enough to represent his position in discussions, but whose status would be low enough to remain an inconspicuous messenger in the eyes of his opponents. Saigo turned out to be the perfect choice. What historians unfortunately do not have an answer to is the most important question – how did Saigo become a confidant of Nariakira? And how did their encounter take place? Saigo and Nariakira seem to have no connections at all. And unless someone finds an old letter or document in their cellar or attic, we will probably never know whether it was a fateful accident or Nariakira noticed the young vassal's hidden talent. Nevertheless, soon after his arrival in Edo, Saigo begins to make regular visits to the residences of such politically important figures as Matsudaira Shungaku of Fukui and Tokugawa Nariaki of Mito. These visits enrich Saigo's vocabulary with the word imperial loyalism and introduce our protagonist to the Mito school of thought, which will change his worldview forever. In a nutshell, the main point of the school was to elevate the imperial rule. The emperor was regarded as the mystical and symbolic embodiment of Japan, and the shogun was his servant. This, according to the followers of the school, emphasized the legitimacy of the shogun's rule. Saigo, like many of his contemporaries, found the Mito school's ideas extremely attractive, on one hand, they asserted the correctness of the existing order, and on the other, they brought to it bright and unusual religious aura of the emperor and his great-great-grand-grandmother, the San Goddess Amaterasu.
One of the ardent ideologues of Mito was a man named Fujita Toko, whom Saigo met soon after arriving in Edo. Like other Mito thinkers, Fujita emphasized duty and loyalty and simply charmed Saigo, who wrote that his conversations with Fujita are like bathing in pure water, my mind becomes clear and free of uncertainty. This acquaintance, however, was not to last. In the fall of 1855, Fujita heroically dies in a major earthquake. Two days after the incident, Saigo wrote in a letter to a friend that Fujita's death was truly a terrible thing for the country. Meanwhile, the year was 1856, and the American consul Towson Harris, whom you may remember from the first episode of the podcast and his affair with the geisha Okichi, who, spoiler alert, was no geisha at all, came to Japan. The government of Japan, which I shall hereafter call the shogunate or bakufu, was faced with two questions. What to do about the United States-Japan Treaty of Commerce, which America was trying hard to push for signature in 1858, and what to do about Shogun Iyasada, whose condition suggested the urgent need for an error. And since Nariakira had interest in both of these matters, Saigo found himself drawn into their resolution as well. At the end of April 1857, Nariakira returns to Kagoshima. Thus, three years later, Saigo is back home again. But not for long. By this point, our hero has already proved his abilities and loyalty to Nariakira, so he is promoted and in December of the same year sent back to Edo. The purpose of Saigo's trip is to make Hitotsubashi Keiki, whose candidacy was backed by Nariakira and his supporters, the shogun's successor. Hashimoto Sanai, who, like Saigo, represents the interests of his lord, becomes Saigo's partner in this quest. He also becomes the third person after Nariakira and Fujita Toko to strongly influence Saigo's future worldview. Of these three, Hashimoto had the boldest views on the future of Japan. Like Nariagira, he recognized the superiority of Western technology, but went further in his reasoning, believing that Japan should enter into open trade relations with Western powers. Moreover, just like Saigo, Hashimoto considered himself a disciple of Fujita Toko and valued nobility, justice, loyalty and filial piety, but despised the blood and xenophobia of the Mito school. Hashimoto hoped that by combining Japanese values and European technology, Japan could become a force to be reckoned with. And, in fact, he was quite right, but he would never know it himself, because things were not going as well as expected, Osaigo and Hashimoto. While they were slowly trying to attract allies at the Imperial Palace in Kyoto and at Shogun's residence in Edo, supporters of the second contender for the title of Shogun's heir were quick to draw an ace out of their sleeves and bring in Inaosuke, who had assumed the high status of Tairo, something like Prime Minister, in the spring of 1858. Saigo immediately realized that events were not developing in Nariakira's favor, and on June 27th he left Edo, reaching Kagoshima 20 days later. 
After reporting to his lord and spending only 11 days in Kagoshima, he leaves again and arrives in Kyoto on August 18th. During Saigo's absence, he had already signed a treaty with America and named the shogun's heir. And as Saigo expected, it was not Keiki. But Saigo already knew that. What he didn't know was that the day before he reached Kyoto, Ryakira had gone down with a high fever. A week later, he would die, and in another 10 days, news of his passing would reach Kyoto. Nariakira's death was a real shock to Saigo. He lost his hero. And he probably wished he could mourn his loss or even follow his lord to the other side, but he had no time for that. The proactive Inaosuke was not going to put things on hold. He had already started to purge his political opponents, and in November Hashimoto Sanai was arrested and later executed. But we won't find out how important he was to Saigo until much later, when in 1877, a letter from Hashimoto, which Saigo had kept for almost 20 years, will be found on his dead body. At the same time, Saigo himself was very busy saving his other trusted contact in Kyoto. He negotiated with the imperial court through a monk named Gisho. And so before he could get him on the 15th of October, Saigo and Gesho left Kyoto and headed to Osaka. However, it soon became clear that Saigo could no longer guarantee Gesho's safety there, and two weeks later, they left Osaka for Kagoshima. Saigo hoped to shelter Gesho in his hometown, but he was out of luck. In the best traditions of adventure movies, the Avil Bakufu representatives got there earlier and threatened the local officials. The officials were now torn between two courses of action, each of which ended badly, and decided to take the third option. They would not turn Gesho over to the prosecutors, but they would also not let him stay in Kagoshima. So, on December 19th, Saigo was ordered to take Gesho to the neighboring province of Hyuga. Saigo, who had already lost his master and one good friend, and risked losing another one, now looked upon the order and saw only the clan's desire to get rid of Gesho. He felt powerless, unable to save people he cared about or keep his promises. When in the evening he informed Gesho of the official decision, and Gesho replied that he was not going to try any further, Saigo made his decision. At night, under the full moon, Saigo and Gesho, accompanied by three other samurai, took a boat across Kagoshima Bay to Hyuga. When the boat was far enough from the shore, Saigo and Gesho climbed onto the gunwale, exchanged firewall poems and jumped overboard. The others immediately rushed to pull them out, but Gesho was no longer breathing. Saigo, on the other hand, was on the verge of death, but soon regained his senses. When news of what had happened reached Kagoshima, officials informed the Bakufu that both men drowned. As for Saigo, he was given a few weeks to recover and then exiled to Amami Oshima Island. That way, the officials could keep Saigo both dead and out of trouble and alive in case they ever needed him again.
Shortly before he was sent to the island, Saigo wrote in a letter to a friend. Perhaps you have heard already how I have become dead bones in the earth, obliged to endure the endurable. Though shamed before heaven and earth, I shall cling to life yet a little longer for the sake of the imperial realm. He calls himself bones in the earth another time in a letter to his childhood friend Okubo Toshimichi. I am dead bones in the earth and fit for the fortunes of samurai. Putting great days behind me, I shall escape to a far-off island like a defeated general in flight. I would prefer not to become involved, yet I have been privy to the great plans of our departed lord. Somehow I shall bear the unbearable for the sake of the emperor and court. Fool though I be, I will do my utmost until my journey comes to an end. Thus, Saigo's dead bones sailed from the southern port of Yamakawa, and on February 14, 1859, he arrived on the distant island of Amami-Oshima, where, in the small village of Tatsugo, Saigo would spend the next three years of his life. As for Saigo himself, he was unable to think about the future. Over the past five years, he had risen from a mere low-ranking samurai to a trusted representative of his lord in Edo, gained and lost for heroes and mentors, and twice unsuccessfully attempted to end his life. This, however, did not prevent Saigo from complaining about the weather at the place of exile. In his first letter from the island, written about a month after his arrival, he reports, It has been 30 days since I arrived to this island, but there has not been a single clear day. We all hear how bad the rain is here, but this is really terrible. Saigo's interactions with the locals did not go well either. The islanders greeted him, but otherwise avoided him as much as possible. And Saigo found their company distasteful, especially because their presence was a constant reminder of the more exciting world he has left far behind. And he was in no hurry to change his mind. After six months of the island, he wrote, As you know, I have been associated with men of high purpose for the past five or six years, and so now I find living with these brutes really difficult. I feel terrible, and I regret that I survived. Such letters are not very pleasant to read. The islanders had done nothing wrong to Saigo, but he looked down on them from his samurai high tower. For him, the islanders were second-class people, even lower than ordinary farmers. At the same time, these letters show us that Saigo was not some legendary character. He was a very ordinary man, with his own anxieties, flaws and moods. And in the semi-mythologized story of his life, such moments are very sobering. After a while, however, Saigo became accustomed to the surrounding reality. He started to teach the local children to read and write, and then began to follow the affairs of the local administration and could not help noticing that the life of the islanders was far from fantastic. In a letter to friends, he wrote, More than anything else, it pains my heart to see the harsh way the people are governed. The administration of this island is unendurable. It is the ultimate in suffering. 
I'm astonished for I had never dreamed it could be so bad. At first, Saingo simply wrote down his observations, then he began to share the statement sent to him from Kagoshima with the islanders, but eventually he could not resist the urge to intervene in the local administration, setting the stage for a multitude of stories of the noble Saingo putting wicked and corrupt officials in their place. About events in Satsuma and Edo, Saingo learned from his friend's letters. And here we must give credit to Okubo and his other comrades from Kagoshima, who provided Saingo with detailed updates. Thus, officially dead but very much alive, Saingo continued to be an extremely influential person among the Satsuma loyalists even while in exile, although for the time being he could only share his knowledge and authority in political affairs by writing. From the letters, Saigo learned about the continued purges of Inaosuke, about the execution of Hashimoto Sanai, and about the death of Nariakira's ally, the daimyo of Mito, Tokugawa Nariaki. These events convinced Saigo that it was no longer possible to save the Bakufu, and its fall remained only a matter of time. In the spring of 1860, he also received the great news that Inaosuke had been killed by a group of samurai from Satsuma and Mito. Saigo was so overjoyed that he ran out into the courtyard barefoot and spent quite a while hitting an old tree with his sword to release the excitement, then returned to the house and got drunk. And if this strikes you as surprising, what do you say about the fact that Saigo also celebrated the anniversary of E's murder with the same enthusiasm? Later writing to Kubo, yesterday, on the anniversary of the assassination, I stayed drunk on shochu all day long. Watching the weakening of the shogunate, Saigo hoped that a letter of pardon would come very soon, but it did not, and Saigo began to lose his hope for return. He married a local girl named Aigana at the end of 1860, then in early 1861, when his son was born, he wrote about it to Kubo, adding, I myself have turned completely into an islander, and it saddens my heart. In the same letter, Saigo thanked his friends for trying to bring him back to Kagoshima, noting that he was not worthy of their efforts. But the time had come, he wrote, to admit the defeat. He would not be returning to his homeland anytime soon. I suppose Saigo's friends were shocked by this message, and not at all by the part about Saigo's declining moods, as they were quite used to that, but by the news about his son. Neither before nor after that had Saigo written to them about his wife or his personal life. With the exception of the rare and sparingly detailed letters from Saigo, we know very little about his life on Awami. Most of the stories of these years of Saigo's life were written after his death and are therefore surrounded by the aura of the great Saigo and embellished by decades of retelling. At the end of 1861, Saigo was busy building a new home for his growing family, but soon after they moved into the new house, a letter that Saigo stopped waiting for arrived on the island. Okubo and other friends have finally secured his return to Kagoshima. 
and so Saigo bids farewell to his island family, and on the 12th of March 1862 finds himself back in Kagoshima for the first time in three years. What? You ask what happened to Saigo's family? Nothing. They stayed on the island. The residents of Amami could not leave the island and move to the center of the province. With Saigo's departure, his marriage to his island wife was considered dissolved. Children from such a marriage, however, were considered descendants on the paternal line and could move to the main part of Satsuma if they wished. The villagers were fully aware of the situation, yet often short island marriages were nevertheless quite popular because they automatically raised the status and financial standing of the bride's family. What happened in Kagoshima during Saigo's absence? Well, after the death of Nariakira, who left no signs behind, the title of the head of the Shimazu clan passed to his nephew Tadayoshi. But since Tadayoshi himself was still young, the real power in the clan was in the hands of Nariakira's brother Hisamitsu, who promised to continue his brother's policy and ensure a prosperous future for Satsuma. And so he proceeded to implement military reforms and establish Western-style steel weapons and textiles production. In national politics, he planned to restore the authority of the imperial court so that it could rule Japan together with the Bakufu. Shortly after arriving in Kagoshima, Saigo meets with Okubo and two high-ranking clan officials, who share Hitsamitsu's plans with Saigo. And Hitsamitsu plans, among other things, to march with an army to Kyoto and convince the imperial court to issue a decree demanding a reform of the shogunate. He then plans to proceed with the decree to Edo and, with the help of his army, ensure that it is carried out. Nariakira had planned to do roughly the same thing shortly before his death in 1858, but didn't get enough time. Saengo was expected to play an important role in Hisamitsu's plan, restraining the growing number of radical loyalists in Satsuma, as well as giving Hisamitsu access to his contacts in Kyoto and Edo. The only problem was, this three-year-old plan no longer seemed so good to Saengo. Firstly, because the political situation in the country had changed since then. Secondly, because you could not simply go to the imperial palace and demand to issue some decree. And finally, even if the imperial court agreed to a sudden request, it would be foolish to openly provoke the Bakufu without having any idea of what it could do in response. Sounds logical. And that's what Saigo voiced to the clan officials, recommending them to postpone the visit to Kyoto and first understand the political situation in the capitals and in Satsuma itself. And then he repeated the same thing to Hisamitsu. Hearing this, Hisamitsu threw a fit and said he wasn't going to cancel anything, agreeing only to slightly postpone his departure from Kagoshima. Saigo reacted in equally mature fashion and left the city to rest at the hot springs of the neighboring resort town Ibusuki. The only adult in this story was Okubo, who went to the springs to find Saigo and persuaded him to help Hisamitsu so that the venture won't end in total failure. 
Saigo was reluctant to agree, but then responsibly headed to Shimonoseki to prepare for Hisamitsu's arrival and at the same time to learn from his friends exactly what was going in the capitals. His friends told him about the situation in Kyoto and crowds of samurai dissatisfied with Bakufu politics gathering there, including a rather large group of men from Satsuma. Saigo, believing that as a true superman, it was his duty to stop them, the same day sailed by ship to Osaka, where he arrives on the 25th of April. From Osaka, he makes his way to Kyoto and decides that the only way to stop his fellow loyalists from acting recklessly is to meet with them and talk things over. As Saigo himself will rather fatalistically describe his decision, they were warriors on the field of death. They had abandoned the lands of their birth and parted from their fathers, mothers, wives and children. They were all counting on me and I could hardly expect to help these warriors on their field of death unless I were to go out into that field myself. And so Saigo went to Fushimi district in southern Kyoto, where a large group of samurai from Satsuma had gathered at the Teradaya Inn. And then there was one very big misunderstanding. Unlike Saigo himself, his friends were quite talkative. So when one of them, Hirano Kunyomi, suggested that Saigo was going to lead the revolutionary group, the samurai in Teradaya happily believed it. And Hirano, now even more convinced that he was right, proceeded to chatter about his speculations to everyone around, including several of Hitsamitsu's close retainers. And so Hitsamitsu, who arrived in Kyoto a few days later, and was already very angry with Saigo for leaving Shimonoseki unannounced, was also told all about it. He immediately ordered to arrest Saigo and sent him back to Kagoshima. Saigo was first escorted underground to Osaka, from where he sailed again to the southern port of Yamakawa in Satsuma and, after two months of waiting, was sentenced to exile on Tokunoshima Island. Okubo tried to persuade Hisamitsu to change his mind, but realizing that this time persistence might send himself into exile, stopped. Five days after the sentence was announced, and being free for less than six months, in early July of 1862, Saigo went into exile again. Saigo's second exile was much less of a vacation than the first. If the first time he was more hidden than punished, the second time he infuriated the head of Shimazu clan himself, who pinned Saigo with four charges. But Saigo himself, so far, has been more upset with his friends who abandoned him in his situation. I mean, we know that Okubo tried, though unsuccessfully, but Saigo didn't know that. And the whole situation, with unverified rumors, of course, was extremely ugly. What it's worse, Saigo described his condition best of all. When I was on Oshima, I waited daily for recall, and so I was bitter and irritable every day. Now it is clear I will never return from Tokunoshima, but that holds no bitterness for me, and my heart is at ease. Perhaps I will return if a war breaks out. But if things remain stable, I will probably petition to stay in the islands. 
when one is branded a criminal by one's own kind without the least effort to learn the truth, and when one's friends are slaughtered, what can one count on? I want nothing more to do with this stupid loyalism. Saigo arrived at Tokunoshima on the 31st of July, 1862, but stayed on the island for less than two months before an order came to transport him even further south, to the island of Okinoe Rabujima. Upon arrival on the island, Saigo was placed in a wooden cage built specially for him. Measuring less than 2 meters by 2 meters, or about 6 feet on the side, the cage, built of heavy beams and covered with a thatched roof, offered little protection from the elements and was not much different from an animal cage. Large and tall Saigo probably could not even stand up to his full height in it, let alone exercise. Whoever had designed this cage was obviously hoping that Saigo would not last long in it. But fate had other plans, because Saigo did not die a third time. His guard, who, like many of his contemporaries, was fascinated by the giant's character, and he knew that Saigo was about 20 centimeters taller than the average Japanese of his time, the guard saved him from confinement as soon as it was possible. From the cage, he moved Saigo to a small house, where the latter remained under house arrest. But even two months spent in the cage took a heavy toll on Saigo's health, and he would spend the next few months recovering. However, he will never regain his former health, chronic ailments, most likely filariasis, better known as elephantiasis, and its complications will haunt Saigo for the rest of his life. Once his health improved, Saigo resumed writing letters, only this time not to Kagoshima, but to Oshima. In his first letter, he laments that he cannot spend time with his children, and that even if he is called back to Kagoshima, he will only stay there until he is allowed to retire and move back to his family in Oshima. But soon his thoughts return to politics. In his letters, Saigo mentions that the realm is terminally ill, and the symptoms cannot be healed no matter what remedy is applied. Make no mistake, some turmoil will break out within three to five years. And that I have begun to think now that I would like to play out the reminder of this farce in combat. In August 1863, he even intended to build a ship to sail to Satsuma to fight with England, which had just recently attacked Kagoshima over the murder of a British subject. If you're interested, I told more about this incident in the second part of the Tokaido Explained episode. However, it did not take long for the turmoil Saigo predicted to occur. On the 28th of March 1864, Saigo's brother Tsugumichi and his friend Yoshihito Mozane would arrive on the island, bringing with them a letter of pardon. A month later, Saigo will be in Kyoto, and four months later, in his first battle. But we will talk about it next time, and look at how Saigo and his now fully formed worldview will respond to the turbulent times facing Japan. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode, and remember that I'd really appreciate if you'd leave me a comment, share your favorite episode with a friend, or help this podcast with a donation. All the links, as always, are waiting for you in the episode description. Talk to you soon!
Bye.